0: In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, we actually skipped over these verses because last Thursday we uh, talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. There's some some advice in here. That's not really the right word, but some direction in here that is so important that I wanted to make sure that the more people got to hear it. Because uh, we usually have a, a bigger turnout, a better turnout on Sunday than we do on Thursday. Um, if you haven't been with us, let me catch up to speed. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, Paul has already addressed, the Apostle Paul has already addressed a whole bunch of problems within the Corinthian church. Um, but in chapter 6, he's come to the problem of sexual immorality. Um, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, prostitution, all the stuff that you think only happens today was rampant in the city of Corinth. This was part of the fabric of that city. And we saw from the very beginning, the problem with the church in Corinth was that they were not impacting Their society, like Ben had just mentioned, we hope to impact our society. No, they were infected by the society so much so that they had begun to excuse their behavior. Um, Back in uh, a few verses back in chapter six, they they would say things like all things are lawful for me, which translates meaning, well, Jesus has saved me. I can do whatever I want now. They also said foods for the stomach. Stomach for the food. So that was their little catchphrase that basically says, look, sex is just biological. It doesn't have any impact really on on my spirit. Paul has shot those things down now by the time we get here in chapter 6. And what we see in chapter 6 is really three great reasons for sexual purity. If you're ever asked, particularly by a Christian, if you're ever asked the question, what's the big deal? So I'm having sex. Everybody's doing it. It's not a big deal. If you ever ask those questions, there are three answers In chapter 6 for you. The first one we saw. uh, Last. I think it was actually two Thursdays ago. And it was your body is created by God. Look at verse 13. Chapter 6 verse 13 says now the body is not for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And he goes on to say that when we when we leave this life our body goes to heaven. So. Your body was created by God for God, not for sexual immorality. Here's a second reason. Your body is connected to Jesus. We saw that a week ago today. Last Sunday, look at verse 15. It says, do you not know that your bodies are members, parts of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Then look at verse 17. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. What we talked about a week ago was the fact that we are inseparable from Jesus. No matter what we do, no matter what we say, people see Jesus in us. But also there's a spiritual component that we are inseparable from Jesus. Today, here's your third reason for sexual purity, even in a society like ours. And that is that your body contains the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, look at verse 19. It says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? See, your body was created by God, for God. Your body is connected to Jesus. It's inseparable. And thirdly, today, your body, if you're a Christian, your body contains the Holy Spirit. That is why purity is so important. That's why verse 18 says, as we begin, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Flee sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, the word there is porneia. It means it's, a, it's an all-encompassing word. It's a broad word. It means any kind of sexual immorality. Fornication, adultery, prostitution, pornography, all of it is is included here. And he says flee sexual immorality. The word flee there is fuego. It means to flee away, to seek safety by way of flight. In other words, run for your life. Paul says When it comes to sexual immorality, run for your life. There's no other kind of sin in the Bible that we are instructed to run away from. Now, we'll come back to that. But suffice it to say for now that when it comes to sexual immorality, there's other sins. Paul says, he'll say, look, look, in in James chapter four, your memory verse, he'll say, stand fast. He will say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Here, he says, when it comes to sex, sexual immorality, run. Look at the rest of verse 18. He says, flee sexual immorality, every sin. We could say every other sin. Every other sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who, who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. See, Paul here is making a delineation. He's saying, look, sexual sin is different from other sins. Now, he's not talking about the power of God to save you. He's not saying that sexual sin is worse as far as it will send you to hell faster. No, apart from Jesus, we know lying or stealing or any other thing will send you to hell, hell just as quickly as sexual sin. Sexual sin can be, it's important to note, can be cleansed through Jesus blood just as quickly, just as thoroughly as other sins. But what Paul is talking about here is the consequences of sin. If you remember When we went through Galatians, came to chapter six, Paul says, you will reap what you sow there. He's talking about consequences, not about like the fact it's not like God is mad at you. It's that there are consequences to every sin. Paul says, once again, verse 18, every sin, every other sin that a man does is outside his body. The word in the Greek is ektos. It means on the outside, on the exterior. He says, but he who commits sexual immorality, sins against, it actually means into his own body. So let's think about that. Every other sin, Paul says, that a man does is outside his body. For instance, lying. If you lie, you are wreaking havoc outside your body. Right? Lying will wreck a relationship with somebody. And the damage is seen when people can no longer trust you. But it's outside the body. It has to do with relationships outside the body. Embezzling. That's a sin, right? You damage someone outside your body. Like, you're sinning against the person that you are stealing from, but the damage is seen in the books. The damage is seen by the things that you steal from them that are outside the body. Gossip. You are ruining another person. The damage is seen in their lives and also usually in the church and wherever you work. But it's outside the body. Paul says, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against or into his own body. Paul says, look, sexual sin in its consequences is different. Other sins are outside the body, but this is against one's own body. The word against is EIS or ICE. And it means into, unto, towards. Other sins wreak havoc outside your body, but when we sin sexually, we sin into our own bodies. And because the damage is inward, for the longest time, it doesn't even seem like there is any damage. People assume, they wrongly assume that no damage is being done because it's being done inward. Everything looks okay on the outside. Jesus called the uh, Pharisees Whitewashed tombs says like because on the outside you look all white and beautiful, but on the inside you it's like dead men's bones. Again, remember when we looked at Galatians chapter six. Let me read to you verse seven and eight says, do not be deceived for God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. How many people were with us when we went through Galatians chapter 6? Do you remember that whole reaping and sowing message? It might be one you'd want to check out. I think it's really helpful because it, it reminds us that God still loves you no matter what sin you commit. But the consequences will stay. They will remain. And I was thinking about this in light of this, this verse. What this says to me, just like a seed is sown and then eventually it pops up, when, when it's sexual sin... I get the idea of the sin going down into the soil before it pops up. It has deep roots. It does a lot of damage before you ever see it. Sin is like a seed. Other seeds pop up rather quickly. They show themselves. For instance, someone cuts you off in traffic. Your anger pops up really quick, doesn't it? Gossip will pop out before you even know it. Right, it's, out, it's there and it's outside the body. But sexual sin, Paul says, grows inward. It grows downward. It wreaks havoc in the soil before it ever pops up on the surface. All the damage, Paul says, at least in the beginning, is on the inside. Verse 18, again he says, He who commits sex, sexual immorality sins into against his own body. Now in what ways? Well, I could think of four ways in, in particular, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Paul says he who commits sexual immorality sins into his own body. First, I'd like to talk about how that happens mentally for men. For everyone, but particularly for men, men who are trying to overcome a sexual addiction or pornography, the biggest problem, I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of men. The biggest problem with men is that the pictures, I don't want to say never go away, but they go away really super slowly. This is from uh, Friday, January 19th, 2007, I think it was Time Magazine, How the Brain Rewires Itself. This this article was by Sharon Begley and it basically suggests that our brains are not static, they're not just like hardware, but they're elastic. and. The things that we look at, the things that we do actually rewire our brain. This is amazing. When you think about it, it has tremendous upsides, meaning you can actually uh, change your brain chemistry by doing well. But it also has downward ramifications. Even secular therapists are beginning to talk about how pornography can physically damage your brain structure, can alter it. That's Because, Paul says, he who commits sexual immorality sins into his own body. What about emotionally? Again, I don't want to be too, uh, I can't think of the word, chauvinist, piggish, I guess. Um, But I think there are differences in men and women. And I think men maybe struggle a little bit more with this mentally. But women, I think, might struggle more with this emotionally. This is from a a book um, called Online Affairs. It says, Women in a chat room are often surprised at what develops in a fairly short period of time. At first, the conversation is stimulating, though flirtatious. Quickly, however, women are often confronted with increasingly sexual questions and comments. Even if the comments don't turn personal, women find themselves quickly sharing intimate information about themselves and their relationships that they would never share with someone in person. Peggy Vaughn says, stay-at-home moms in chat rooms are sharing all this personal stuff they are hiding from their partners. She finds that the intensity of women's online relationships can quickly escalate into thinking they have found a soulmate. Women, and again, it's not just women, but maybe more often than men, they get drawn in by the emotional. The heart, the emotions, is also a part of the body. Women tend to be emotional in their makeup. It's a beautiful thing that God has made you that way. But women can be caught up, they can stay caught up in sexual immorality because it's emotionally attractive. And then they can find themselves enslaved because it's emotionally satisfying. He or she who commits sexual immorality against, will commit a sexual immorality against or into his or her own heart. You get it? The psyche, the emotional center, that's all part of the body. So what about, So we've we've covered mentally, emotionally, what about physically? Well, that was actually the easiest, unfortunately, to talk about. Here's some statistics. More than half of all people will have an STD at some point in their lifetime. More than half of all people. The estimated total number of people living in the United States with an STD is over 65 million. Every year, there are at least 19 million new cases of STD, some which are curable. More than $8 billion is spent each year to diagnose and treat STDs and their complications, and that doesn't include HIV. There's, there's just tons and tons of statistics here. Um, each year, this one's really sad, each year, one in four teens contract an STD one in two sexually active persons will con- contract an std by age 25 and speaking of inward right we're talking about damage that is inward is unseen listen to this it is estimated that as many as one in four americans have genital herpes a lifelong infection yet up to 90% of those with herpes are unaware that they have it sexual immorality Paul says is like any different than anything else it damages you Inside, Inwardly. First, verse 18 again says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. I think we've made the case. Sexual sin damages you on the inside. Mentally, emotionally, physically. Maybe there's someone in the room. I hope not. But maybe there's someone in the room saying, so what? I'm willing to take that risk. Maybe you're thinking, well, mentally, I don't mind if those pictures are in my head. Or emotionally, I don't mind if I'm affected because I I get something out of it. Or maybe you're thinking, physically, well, I'll take my chances. Don't worry about me. It's my own body. I can do with it what I want. Well, not exactly. Look at verse 19. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Paul's reminding the Corinthians, look, your body is not your own anymore. You have you have a roommate. When you were saved, when you were born again, the Bible says the Holy Spirit took up residence in your heart. The Holy Spirit came to be our teacher, our guide. He came to live with us forever. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus also said, I will send the Holy Spirit. He will be with you. He will be in you and he will come upon you. The Holy Spirit set up camp in our lives on the day that you were saved. The word temple there in verse 19 is naos. It actually refers to not just the temple, the, the temple grounds, but it's talking about a very specific point on the temple grounds, which was the holy of holies. This was the most sacred place. The Holy of Holies was the place in the the Jewish temple where only the the high priest could go maybe once a year. Sometimes they would only go once in a lifetime. And you know what they would do with the Holy of Holies? When, When that person would go in, because it was such a holy, sanctified place, they would tie a rope around his ankle with a bell on it, and they would listen. And when, if the bell ever stopped ringing, they would yank him out. They would pull him out because no one wanted to risk going in there not ready. That's how the Holy of Holies was. And Paul compares our bodies to this Holy of Holies. Paul says, do you not understand? Your temple is the most Holy of Holies where, where Jesus, where the Spirit has come to live. We really don't have a concept, I think, of how the Jews looked at their temple. If you've been following the news, you know that that the Jews and the Muslims right now are are fighting over this temple. This is a very sacred, very important uh, piece of property. The idea to the Jews, when when Paul would write this, the idea of pollution inside the temple, of garbage inside the temple, would have made them recoil in horror. Paul is saying, look, do the math. Your body... My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the holy of holies. All other sins, Paul says, are outside the temple, but sexual sin, it's like you're bringing the garbage into the holy of holies. That means like viewing pornography is like taking those images, bringing them in through the portal of the eye and using them as wallpaper in the holy of holies. That means the steamy romance novels that make you stumble, chat rooms, all that stuff. It's like setting up a screen with a projector in the Holy of Holies and watching it. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, all of the stuff that is done with our physical bodies. Paul says, look, if you're a Christian, your body is no longer yours. You are bringing all of that stuff inside the temple of God. And it's not, by the way, just about the Holy Spirit residing in the temple that is you. It's also about complete ownership. See, he's not really just your roommate. He's actually your landlord. Look at verse 19. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? See, the Christian can't truthfully say, well, you know, I'm not hurting anybody. It's just me. It's just myself. It's just my own body. No, this verse says that you gave up ownership of your own body on the day that you were saved. That was part of the bargain, right? Lord, take me, warts and all. I'm not perfect, but here I am. You can have me. You gave him ownership. Verse 20 says, for you were bought at a price. The word bought there is agarazzo. It means to be in the marketplace. We've seen this word before. It it was used in the slave trade. You guys remember? Remember back the day that you were on the market, on the slave trade? Remember when you had a really hard taskmaster? Someone who didn't care about you, who owned you, you did his bidding. It might, he might have used drugs or sex or power or whatever it was to get you to do what he wanted you to do. But he always got what he wanted out of you. This old taskmaster, he could violate you. He could steal from you. He could beat you down and there was nothing you could do about it. And then one day, after this wicked taskmaster had sucked the life out of you, taken everything of value from you, he put you up for sale to see if he could get anything. A public mockery. Who would want something so used? Who would want something so punished, so beaten down, so devoid of life, so worthless? the crazy thing is, when the gavel came down, you were actually bought. Someone bought you. You were purchased by God. Here's the question. Do you know how much? you know how much he paid? Look at verse 20. He says, for you were bought at a price. The word price there is a price paid or received for a person, for a thing or a thing, bought or sold. It means to value something by the price which is fixed upon it. How many people are constantly amazed, I am, at how much NBA players make. Yeah? Okay. I mean, is anybody really worth that much money? Worth millions like that? Well, the answer is, they're worth exactly what someone is willing to pay for them. I mean, you can tell what something or someone is worth by what someone is willing to pay. So... How much did you go for? When Jesus bought you, when God purchased you, how much did he spend? Was it a hundred dollars? Do I hear a thousand? A million? Ten million? We've talked about it before. The only currency that could buy you back was perfect blood. Was Jesus' perfect blood? A perfect blood sacrifice. Because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's no way out. Of the circumstances without the shedding of blood. So here's what happened. At the auction where you were, there was a father and son team. The father was willing to give up the most precious thing to him, his own son. You fathers who have sons and daughters, think about that. The father was willing to give up the very most precious thing, and the son was willing to give up his own life so that when the gavel went down, you had been bought and paid for by the most valuable thing in I was going to say the universe but beyond the universe. You guys ever heard the the uh, illustration of what your body is worth in chemicals? When we total the monetary value of the elements in our bodies and the value of the average person's skin we arrive at a net worth of $4.50. So if I was going to purchase you for just the elements in your body, I could give you $5 and you'd owe me change. That's the worth of your body in chemicals. What was the worth of your body to your former master? Nothing. By the time he was done with you, he he would have given you away. But what was the worth of your body to your new master? Priceless, right? Just like the commercials. The Holy Spirit is not only your roommate. He's actually your landlord. He is your Lord, your master. He bought you. We are bought at a price. He's the master over our body because he gave all that he had for it. Therefore, he says, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. See, one of the ways that the Greeks used to excuse their immorality was they're like, well, my body and my spirit are two different things. One doesn't have anything to do with the other. What I do with the body is of no consequence to the spirit. Paul says, look, both your body and your spirit belong to God. The fact is that God purchased you. He paid such a high price leads to only one conclusion that is right. And that is, he says, glorify God with your body and your spirit. What does glorify mean? The word is doxatso. It means to adorn with luster, to clothe with splendor, to impart glory to someone, to render it excellent. To make renowned, to render illustrious, to cause the dignity and worth of someone to become manifest and acknowledged. To glorify someone basically means to show how wonderful they are. See, on the slave market, he was a gracious master who brought you away, bought you away from destruction. He's given us freedom. He's not like your old taskmaster. Your old taskmaster could force you to do stuff. Your new master is a good, gracious master. He's allowed you to be free. He's given you dignity and worth. And Paul says, return to him glory, dignity, worth. Make his glory known, manifest. Use your body to glorify him. Jesus said, let your works be before men so that they see your good works and they glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, some of you guys did exactly that this last Thursday. And yesterday, you used your bodies to stir pans or your, your feet to get in a car to go up to serve people who are, who are hurting. You used your bodies to serve these tornado victims. And what did you do? The Bible says you brought glory to God because you were using your body for his good purposes. So here's a question, pretty broad question, should catch all of us. What are you using your body for? Are you using your body for his glory or for yours? Are you using your body for his desires or for yours? For his purposes or for yours? Well, hopefully by now you are convinced of the need to address this whole problem of sexual immorality. I didn't give you in this outline because it kind of was weak, but we can review here. It says that sexual sin is singular in its consequences, meaning sexual sin is different than other stuff. Than other sins also we've learned that sexual immorality is sin against the sanctuary right it's like bringing garbage into the sanctuary sexual sin dishonors your new master and submits your body back to your old master we are to honor God with the body that he bought with the blood of Christ here's the biggest question I think if you're like me hopefully you're convinced but here's the question how in this society with all that surrounds us with pornography, with all the stuff that is available and hard to avoid. It's it's beyond easy to get. It's now hard to avoid. How in the world, how can you overcome? Well, we find it in those first three words in verse 18. Go back with me. Flee sexual immorality. The word flee means to run away. The way to beat sexual temptation, sexual immorality, is simply to run. Run as fast as you can, as quickly as you can, in the other direction. Run for your life, Paul says. Turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Look at verse 7. James says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, See, there, not that interesting? Most sins, James says, look, resist the devil and he will flee. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, no, you flee. When it comes to sexual immorality, Paul says, no, you run for your life. One is a picture in James of you kind of standing your ground and the devil flees from you. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's a picture of you running for your life from temptation. Well, I hope you understand what Paul is saying is when it comes to sexual immorality, the way that you resist is to flee. The way that you resist the devil when it comes to this issue is to run the other way. You guys ever heard the phrase, he who fights and runs away lives to fight another day. I I would say maybe the better translation for our purposes is, is just he who runs the other way lives to fight. Another day. Don't even worry about trying to fight. Run, Paul says. See, if you try to stand your ground, and how many people do, and they they think that they are, they try to convince themselves that they're being holy. Well, I'm going to stand under this temptation. If you try to stand your ground, when it comes to sexual temptation, Paul says, you will be defeated. What happened to David, a man after God's own heart, when he lingered on his roof, looked across and saw Bathsheba? He fell into Sexual temptation. On the other hand, remember Joseph? Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And he came to a place where he was uh, trusted by the master, Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. What did he do? First, he said no. He said no. Finally, she grabbed him by the clothes. And he ran. He was the first streaker. (laughs) He was he would have rather been embarrassed that way than to think that he could stand under sexual temptation. That is the only strategy that works. He didn't try to stay and fight the temptation. He ran. And what did he do? He gained victory through retreat. Sexual immorality. You gain victory through retreat. Here's another way to say it, maybe to run from an enemy is to take quick, decisive, evasive action. Right? When we, when we hear the word run, we think that that means coward. No, this is to take quick, decisive, evasive action. So practically, let's talk real practical. How do you run from temptation today? What about the TV? When it comes to the TV in your home, in my home, are you ready? Are you willing to take quick, Decisive, evasive action? Are there shows that you are currently watching that are bringing images into the Holy of Holies that shouldn't be there? And if a commercial comes up, are you ready to take quick, decisive, evasive action? And if it's really bad for you, are you willing to take the TV out of your house altogether? Jesus said, if your hand offends thee, cut it off. Get rid of it. It's better for your hand to perish than for your whole body to perish. Daniel made a covenant with his eyes. Remember, Daniel? Um, the, the, The high schoolers are going to be seeing this, and I think it's so great because it's so relevant to kids today. Daniel made a covenant with his eyes, and he said, I will not look upon that which will defile me. What about the Internet? Are you willing to take quick, decisive, evasive action? There are so many filters for computers, for programs that are, are free. They don't even cost you anything. There's plenty of ways to take quick, decisive, evasive action. And a lot of it really is pre-planning. Because if, you, if, you don't, if you're not set up to run, then you will find yourself staying. Another thing, just a practical thing, make sure that your computers are out in the open, especially for your kids. I hope no one is letting your kids have a computer inside their own room You're just asking for trouble. You can blame me, okay? Romance novels. Run the other way. If they are making you, if they are bringing images into your mind that are defiling the Holy of Holies, run the other way. Maybe you're tempted at the gym. I drove by here last Thursday. There's a ton of people here. And when I was single and going to Bally's, that was one big temptation fest. I quit going. If you're at the gym and you have temptation, keep running, exercise, run away. Maybe at the office. I'm not kidding. If you have temptation at the office, find a way to run away or ask for a transfer. It's not worth your family. It's not worth giving up all that God wants you to have. Are you married? If you're married, get the tape from last Thursday, because we, we looked at verses one through nine of the next chapter, which basically says for married couples, it's not just about who you run from, what you run from. It's who you run to. Married couples, we should be running to each other. For singles and for married couples, it's again, not so much who you running from, but who are you running to? Back to James four and we'll see. James four, verse seven says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Here it is. Verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You see all the motion happening in those verses. If we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Likewise, if we run from temptation, the devil will flee. I don't know if anybody in the room today, I'd be surprised if, if no one in the room was struggling with these things. If if our church isn't dealing secretly with these kind of issues, then we're the only church in America. If you're struggling with these things, I hope James chapter four, verse seven and eight will give you hope. Because what this says is, if you're willing to resist the devil by any means necessary, including running away. If you will obey the scriptures, if you will take quick, decisive, evasive action, if you will run the other way, this is what's beautiful. If you will run the other way, he will flee from you. That means the temptation doesn't have to go on for the rest of your life, at least in the degree that it is now. If you will run the other way, you will one day turn around and ask the Lord, Where'd he go? Where's my pursuer? Where's my accuser? Flee sexual immorality. Run to Jesus. Resist the devil, and he will flee. From you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you.